There's a light bulb in Livermore, Livermore, California that has burned almost continuously since 1901. The Livermore Power and Light Company at that time gave the bulb to the Livermore Volunteer Fire Department over a century ago, almost 120 years ago, and has been burning ever since with a few short interruptions. It has not been turned off since 1976. I don't know if you can imagine that, but since 1976, this light bulb has not been turned off. It even has its own website. You can go online, and there is a live stream of the light bulb still burning. There's a timestamp on the bottom, and you can see it still burning over 120 years later. Talk about faithful little light bulb. We'll come this morning to a passage of Scripture about faithfulness. And and while it's not about a light bulb, it's about a person, Jesus Christ. And in our series of the supremacy of Christ from the book of Hebrews, we've seen his incarnation that we came off of three messages concerning his incarnation and gave us time to meditate on that and contemplate us on it as, as a group of believers. But now we come to a challenge this morning for us, and it comes from these verses, and, and it comes by way of this challenge for us is to contemplate the faithfulness of your Savior. Contemplate the faithfulness of your Savior. The author of Hebrews continually in this book will give us challenges, not in some ways to live out, But in some ways, he just kind of wants us to take a step back and just think about what we're reading. And this is one of those times. And to do so, he gives us a truth, and he also gives us a response to consider this morning from this passage of, of Scripture. So first the truth, and then the response. The truth is, from verses 1 to the first part of verse 6, is that Jesus was completely faithful Jesus was completely faithful. Notice how he starts out the, the, the portion. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. Please note with me that this, this truth shows the supremacy of Christ. That word, therefore, is a logical conclusion of what was discussed in chapter 2. You remember we we talked about in chapter 2, verses 5 through 18, the incarnation, the coming of Christ to this earth had a purpose. And we discussed several of those purposes. That He came to bring salvation. He came to sanctify us. He came to make us His own. He came to destroy the devil like we saw last week and destroy death. He came to be our high priest. And He came to, to help us in our temptations, because he went through, through them as well. So considering the faithfulness of Jesus is just the next logical step. In this argument that the, the writer of Hebrews has of showing the supremacy of Christ, so he uses that little term, therefore, to discuss this. Notice also with me, too, that this, this command, and the word consider is a command, we'll get there, But the command is for all believers. He uses the term holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. Now why does he do this? I think he does this intentionally because he's calling these readers, he's calling us to consider our position in Christ. 
We're holy brethren. It highlights our inclusion into the family of God and the holiness to which we've been called. We, we looked at that back in the, the uh, discussion in Ephesians, didn't we? How we are made a family of God. We, we've been taken, Jew and Gentile, we've been taken into one family and no longer are there those racial or ethnic distinctions. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're now part of a greater family. Amen? Right? Amen? I mean, God, God has taken us weak, struggling individuals from different backgrounds, and He has made us into one family. And a family is holy. It's, it's living out the holiness of God. But he also uses this other term. I think it's very interesting. Partakers of the heavenly calling. What does, what does that mean? The word partakers means companion or to partner with. And what he's doing there is he's highlighting that we are companions in the faith. So we're a family, brothers, right? But we're also partakers of the same faith. So in, in a family, you have uh, different people. You have an extended family um, as well don't you? And, and, and that extended family reaches out to different branches of the family. You're all part of one family, ultimately, but there's several different branches. And so you'll have all the same connection to the patriarch or the matriarch of the family. Let's say the idea here is that we're companions in the same faith. We're not only family members, but we're, we're companions in the same faith. The phrase heavenly calling here refers to our salvation, where it comes from. So God in heaven has called us into his family or his house as the author will highlight in these verses. It reflects the idea of Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 14, where Paul says, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. God has called us to be part of this house, this family, this faith from heaven. This isn't an earthly calling, it's a heavenly calling. Which leads me to say and, and consider this morning, are you thankful that God called from heaven to you? That God did not just sit up there idly waiting for people to believe in him. He deliberately reached down, as we saw the past three Sundays, to your life and called you into his family. You didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve it <laughs> by any means. But still God called us into his family. He's given us a heavenly calling. Notice also with me that this truth is to be carefully considered. Consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. The word consider here has the idea of to think about carefully or give careful consideration. This is a command, which means it's to be obeyed. So the author of Hebrews is in, in contemplating the faithfulness of Christ, is asking us to carefully think about it. You know, when I proposed to my wife, I, I was ecstatic that I had a girlfriend, and then as, as things started, I, believe me, I have stories, and you, you know. I don't even know why she said yes. To this day, it still it blows my mind why she said yes. But I had to take it seriously. I had to think about it. And she had to think about it more because she was like, well, am I going to marry this guy and give up my life for him? You know, there's some careful considerations when going into marriage. And, and, and I, I encourage young people today to think about it carefully because it really is a life change, right? You, you're, you're willing to give up a lot of your circumstances to be married to someone. 
I don't watch as much sports as I used to. That's one thing, and it's, it's a thing I've gladly given up, but I don't watch as much sports as I used to. It's not something I've had to give up to spend time with my wife. And that's good. I carefully considered it, and I said yes. And she had to do a lot more than I did because she was, you know, just thinking about, okay, this, is this what we want to do? Is this what I want to do? I think the point here that the author is bringing out is that our thoughts on Christ must be intentional and studious. Too many believers today settle for light complications of Jesus rather than serious thoughts which transform our thinking and actions. Can you guess the day of the week that most Christians think about Jesus? Probably Sunday. And the rest of the day, he's a mere afterthought. The rest of the week, he's a mere afterthought. The Bible consistently calls us to carefully consider Jesus Christ. And how many times throughout the day, throughout the week, when we're struggling in our faith, when we're upset, when we're tempted, do we think on Jesus? The author of Hebrews will will turn our attention this little, this is way down the road, But in Hebrews chapter 12, remember what he says? He says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. You see, our lives as believers in Jesus Christ, my life as a believer in Jesus Christ, must be about thinking about Jesus and what he's done and who he is and how that impacts my life. I cannot just have a random thought or a ponderful moment. No, I need to indulge in thinking intentionally about Christ. To carefully consider Him. Notice with me forwardly that this truth originates from Jesus' roles, plural. Consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus some of you may look at the word apostle and think, well, we know the 12 apostles. What, what is the author of Hebrews mentioning here by using this word? I, I think what he's doing here is because the word apostle means messenger or a special messenger of Christ from him. And here the sense is not that Jesus is the first of the 12 apostles. No, he, he was sent from God. He's a messenger from God. Jesus uses this terminology, this idea in John chapter 17, verse 18, where he says, as he's praying to the Father, as he's giving his high priestly prayer, he says, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. So Jesus, in one sense, is a messenger from God. The ultimate messenger, right? But he's a messenger from God. So he is, he is the apostle, the, the special messenger from God. God had sent messengers before, Right? prophets and, and uh, priests in the Old Testament, but he, as we saw at the very beginning of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. So he's a special messenger from God. He's also our high priest, high priest of our confession. We looked at this a little bit last week. 
But that term high priest refers to Christ's role as our intercessor before God. As all the high priests were flawed and fatal, and we'll get into this into end of chapter 4 into chapter 5, Christ is our perfect high priest. But he adds this little qualifier to it, the high priest of our confession. What, what does that mean? The word confession means to acknowledge. So what the author of Hebrews doing is doing here is that he's highlighting not just Jesus' role as our high priest in totality, but more specifically, his role as high priest of our faith. It's not Moses, as he will highlight here in a minute, nor is it Elijah or anyone, Aaron, any one of the Levitical priests. Now the, the high priest of our faith is not a person who is human only, but the God-man, Jesus Christ. He is our high priest. He is the one who, who has both established our faith and now intercedes on behalf of us because of our faith. So the believer in Jesus Christ is asked not just to consider Jesus himself, but his roles that he fulfills on our behalf. So thinking about Jesus goes beyond just surface level thoughts. It dives deep into who he is and what he does. Notice also with me that the faithfulness of Jesus is comparable to the faithfulness of Moses. Look with me, verse 2. Who is faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. The word faithful here means to be trustworthy or reliable. Jesus was faithful to what God appointed him to do. He didn't fail. He didn't lack anything. He was faithful to complete it. In the same way that Moses was faithful in his tasks that God gave him, which was primarily over the Old Testament nation of Israel. You remember the story of Exodus, how he led them out and led them through the wilderness wanderings. So here Moses, the most revered of all the Old Testament saints in the Jewish mindset, still today, you go to Israel today, who's talked about the most? It's Moses. The law of Moses. He is lauded here for his faithfulness to what God gave him to do. So Jesus was faithful and Moses was faithful to what they, God gave them to do. The two are on equal plane. But yet, notice that Jesus is worthy of more glory because of who he is. He continues his argument here, for this one, that is Christ, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, insomuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. The word counted here means to regard something as worthy. So Jesus is counted as being more worthy than Moses because of his identity. And what is that identity? The identity is that he built the house. He's the one who started. He's the one who built it out. So therefore, he has more glory because he built it. And the house of God here is, is, is a people, not a, not a place or a nation. This is the argument of Paul in Ephesians. If you remember going back to Ephesians, how God knitted together from two people, one. And he highlights that consistency throughout the book, especially at the end of chapter 2, where it says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The household is a people, 
being built up into a structure that resembles a house. As he who built the house has much more honor than the house. So what verse 4 is doing, and and some might uh, look back, uh, excuse me, moving on to verse 4. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. So what verse 4 is, in comparison to verse 3, is just a general observation. Everybody builds a house. The houses we have in our area, somebody built them, right? I mean, somebody had to. But ultimately, the one who allows the building to exist and allows it to be built is God. That's the ultimate foundation. And some commentators note that this is an argument for the deity of Jesus. Because he's the builder in verse 3, and God is ultimately the builder of anything, everything, ultimately, Jesus is God. That's the argument that's given. So he's worthy of more glory because of, of who he is. God who built the house is building the house, which is the people of God. Jesus' faithfulness also is greater than Moses's because of his relationship to God. Continue on verse four, 5. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. So Moses was faithful in what God gave him to do. He was faithful to give out the law and to establish the nation and to guide them in the way that they were supposed to go. But he did it as a servant. Not as a son. He was completely faithful. That's the, that's the word indeed there. The word indeed is also be translated complete. The emphasis being on the whole house of God. He was completely faithful over that. Moses' role as servant also involved prophesying about the future. For a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. There's options that exist as to what this means. And without delving too deeply into them, I think what most likely the author is doing here is he's referring to Moses prophesying about Jesus. Because he does. If you remember Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, it says, Moses is quoted here as he's giving his final thoughts to the second generation of Israelites who are about to go into the land. He says this in Deuteronomy 18, 15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So he's pointing to someone greater than him that the nation needs to listen to, and that one is Jesus. And therefore, because of that, his position is lesser than Christ. So Moses was faithful as a servant, and Jesus' faithfulness is measured in terms of being the Son of God but Christ as a son over his own house. Now, it would be helpful. I'm using a a New King James this morning. It would be helpful to put, uh, even though it's not there in the original language, just to kind of smooth that phrase out a little bit, but Christ was faithful as a son over his own house. It would be helpful if the translators put that in there. That would be just help smooth things out a little bit. But Christ was faithful, not as a servant, but as a son Right? So the son is always greater than the servant. The servant has a role and a position, but Jesus as the Son of God is greater. And his faithfulness is more important and magnified. And what was his faithfulness? His faithfulness was that of high priest. 
Moses was the curator of the nation. He's the one who laid down the law. But Jesus is the greater one by his work as high priest, and therefore his faithfulness is greater and more magnified. And so what the author is doing here, the ultimate goal, some of you think, well, why, why is he doing this? We have to, again, have to think about who the book is written to. Jewish Christians who are struggling in their faith. His ultimate goal in Hebrews is not to disparage Moses, but to show that Moses or that Christ is better than Moses. Yeah, Moses is great. Moses was faithful. Moses was a servant of God. The author uh, encourages his readers to consider that. He praises Moses, but Moses is not better than Christ. Christ is greater. And I would liken this comparison to the idea of if you buy products online through Amazon, Walmart, whatever it might be, you always have ratings and reviews of those products, don't you? And what is the purpose of those ratings and reviews? You're, you're comparing multiple products. You're trying to figure, okay, do I want to buy this type of um, table saw or this type of table saw? Or do I want to buy this type of uh, cleaning agent and this type of cleaning agent? Sometimes a product is better because it gets a better review in the job that it does. And comparing it to a to a competitor, you see, okay, this cleaning agent does a better job because this person gave it a 4.5 and gave it this review. While this cleaning agent over here does a good job, but it's not as highly rated. It doesn't have as many as positive reviews. So therefore, it's not bad, but this one over here is greater. That's what the author is doing. He's taking Moses and Christ, he's putting them side by side, and he's saying Moses has a good position, he did well, he was faithful, he was someone to be patterned after, but ultimately Christ is better. His faithfulness was as our high priest and as the Son of God, and therefore he's the one who is better than Moses. I hope that helps, but that's what, he, that's what he's doing. Moses is good, but Christ is better. It leads me to ask this question this morning. As we think about this, do you think deeply on your Savior? Do you think deeply on your Savior? Yeah, a lot of, again, a lot of believers, including myself, fall into the trap of just thinking of Jesus when there's a crisis or on Sundays. when Scripture clearly points out that our thoughts, our, our contemplations of Him are to be consistent and to be consistently deep. Now, some you, I'm not saying that you have to open up Wayne Grudem's theology and read through all the doctrine of Christ. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that we think about Jesus as we contemplate who He is and what He's done, it should be just more than just the surface-level Sunday school stuff. It should be in-depth, thinking about, okay, what does it mean that Jesus is my high priest? It means that he's interceding for me even now, right? Even as you and I are sitting here right now, Christ is interceding for us before the throne of God, which says, A, he loves us, and to B, he's serious about his job. Jesus did not take his role as high priest lightly. For that, he is to be thanked and worshiped. And it may also mean that as, as we're going throughout the day, we're facing temptation. 
We're facing uh, just an art, just a, an increasingly burdenous task before us of either tempted to get mad and let loose, say something or do something we shouldn't, or just let it pass. And we can think about Christ and what he did in his temptation during the 40 days in the wilderness. When he was at his lowest point, weakest point, what did he do? He combated temptation with the Word of God. And that can be an example for you and I as we think about the, 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 the times that we're tempted to combat the lie of the devil with the truth of God's Word. That's thinking deeply on Christ and what he's done and impacting our lives and changing our lives. So again, I ask you, do you think deeply about your Savior? We have all work to do. So what's our response? So we've seen the truth. What's the response? Last part of verse 6. The response is we are to be faithful. Whose house we are, if we hold fast to the confession and the rejoicing of the hope, firm to the end. This response I want you to see is based in our identity. Whose house we are. Another way of saying it is to smooth out the grammar. I think it's, it, it's a good translation here. Another way to say it is, we are his house. That would smooth it out just a little bit. What, what the author is doing is he's making a factual statement. We are his house, present tense. This is our current situation. It's not we were or we could be. We are his people, right? We are his house. This does not change regardless of time or situation. The house is the people who have been saved by Christ and added to God's family. So our faithfulness is rooted in our identity as his people. But notice also with me that this requirement, this is a requirement for our endurance, not our faith. Okay? This is a requirement for our endurance, not our faith. Now you see the word if. If you know your grammar, if is a conditional statement, right? Normally it is, right? It's a conditional statement. And, and if you look at this, normally if you have a conditional statement, what happens? If this, then that, right? Potential result. That can be one way of doing it. And some have looked at this phrase in Hebrews and automatically jumped to a works-based salvation. I don't think that's what the author is referring to because he's not talking about salvation in general, right? He's not talking about how to be saved. He's talking about what does it mean to be part of God's family, God's house, God's people. It's not about a requirement to be in God's house, but an encouragement to continue to be a part of God's house. Here's one definition. I will add a caveat in the middle of this definition that this uh, author gave uh, at W.S. Outlaw, who wrote a commentary in the book of Hebrews. He said that salvation is a wonderful gift prepared by God on the basis of the blood of Jesus Christ. He offers that free gift to all who hear the gospel. If they respond, he will enable them to come. Now, I'm going to add the caveat there. I don't think, I think he's off there. It's not about the response. God enables the response and enables the coming. So that's my caveat on that definition. But the Scripture nowhere teaches that he will compel them to come. Do you realize that? Salvation isn't about compelling people to come. God doesn't do that. 
Continuing on here. And once they have come, the Scripture does not teach that He will compel them to stay. So coming to faith in Christ involves belief and, and being a part of God's family, but God doesn't make us stay there. He wants us to stay there, right? We need to stay there. But He doesn't force us to stay there. Now before I, I confuse you even more, let me give you an illustration. How many of you have a membership at a, an online store, whether Sam's Club, Walmart, or something like that. Can I see a raise of hands? A few of us, okay? We have a membership at Sam's Club. There's one down in Duluth. Uh, when we lived in Ankeny, there was one just a couple miles from away from where we lived. Well, what do you do when you have that membership? You pay for the right to shop at that store. And for us, we pay the right for the right to shop at any Sam's Club there is in the country. We can walk in either on our phones or in our wallets. We have a card, membership card, that we show at the front door that allows us to gain access. And we can shop for whatever we want. And, and for us, most of it right now is online because we have a plus membership and we get free shipping, which is great. So we have the right to shop there. But if we don't exercise that right, we can't receive any of the benefits, can we? I can't just sit in my house and think about Sam's Club and ordering something from there and expect something to come. Doesn't, wouldn't it be great if that, that worked out really nice? Okay? I, I can't expect that, right? Why? Because they haven't gone online and ordered something. I'm a member, but I haven't exercised my option to use those benefits. Right? And what Jesus, what the author of Hebrews is doing here is he's calling our attention to the fact that we are members of God's family through faith in Christ, but we need to exercise the option of the benefits. We can't just sit back and let, it th let us think that it's going to come to us. We have to be involved. We have to endure. And for the, the recipients of the book, they had to endure a lot of trials and tribulations and, and difficulties. They couldn't abandon the family of God, and expect to be encouraged and to be faithful. No, they had to be a part of it. And unfortunately, if you go to Hebrews chapter 10, you don't, you don't have to go there. There were some who were not doing that. There were those who were abandoning the faith. That who were uh, not being a part of the family of God, not doing uh, being part of the, the, the time of worship and everything and, and receiving the encouragement and the truth that they needed to consider. So what he's doing is, is, is challenging us to persevere as part of his house and not drop out and, and leave those benefits behind. So what are we to do? We are to, we are to be faithful to the hope that we have. We are his house, we are his people. We're to hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope. Firm to the end. The word fast, hold fast here, means to adhere to convictions, traditions, or beliefs. And what the author is doing is he's using this word to point out that he wants us to be a reality in their lives. That we should hold fast to what? The confidence. What does the word confidence mean? It means boldness. And, and it can be used as, word, as an encouragement. So our hope is cause for boldness in our lives. The hope that we have in Christ increases our boldness for God. Well, how do you get that boldness? You're faithful to His Word. You're faithful to His people. This isn't about 
always being here at church and then every single time the doors are open. This is about being faithful to the people of God. So can I ask you by just, just way of application, when you come and are faithful to, to God's people, are you encouraged and therefore bold for God in your daily life? Hold fast to the confidence, the boldness, the encouragement in God, and therefore live it out. Are you and I doing that? Our hope also is cause for rejoicing. The word, word rejoicing here means boasting or pride, specifically in the object being boasted in. So, so the boasting that he's referring to is not found in pride, because we know that all happens. We've seen it before. When someone boasts or is prideful, it's normally because of something they've done. But we're boasting, we're rejoicing, we're proud, and I can use that in a biblical sense, just sense, we're proud in the hope that we have. We're boasting in our hope. So when people are talking to us about God and faith and everything, we're not boasting about what we've done. We're boasting about what he's done. That's our hope. That's our faith. That's our cause for rejoicing. So are you and I rejoicing in our salvation? Are we pointing people to God? Or are we rejoicing in ourselves where salvation doesn't come from? Are you rejoicing in our salvation? Our hope is cause for boasting, for rejoicing. And what is the hope? The hope is what the author described in chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. About bringing many sons to glory, sanctifying us, being him calling us his family, destroying death and the devil, being our high priest identifying us with us in our temptation. The results of the incarnation are our hope for this life and the next. So are we, you and I faithful to the hope that we have? It leads me to ask this question by way of application. I've already touched on it a little bit. Are you faithful to his people? Are you faithful to his people Here's the verse I was looking for, Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. So some stop meeting, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This does not happen. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 does not happen if you are not faithful to his people. Now again, this is not about church attendance. This is not about being ever here for every service, being involved in every ministry. That's, that's not what this is about. Are you being faithful to the people of God in your area? There are visitors here with us this morning who are up here on vacation. Sorry for the hot weather. I wish it was a little cooler. But you are to be faithful to the people of God in your area. And I hope you are. And, and members and visitors and attenders here at this church who've been coming for a long time, you're to be faithful to this church, not as a requirement, but as a necessity. Because if you and I are not faithful to his people, we don't get the encouragement. We don't get the, the challenge, the truth that keeps plugging our way. Yes, we can read it in his word on a personal daily basis, but there's so much more to it if we just come together as a body of believers, isn't there? You know, when we had COVID and everything, all that went on, and what, not going to get into politics, that, and all that different stuff. It's a serious thing we need to take, in, take into consideration. But when you and I were worshiping from our homes, wasn't it different? Didn't it make you feel like you wanted something more? 
That's intentional. Because our life in Christ is not meant to exist on a personal level. It is to be also on a corporate level. And that is so much more valuable than just a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Is that beneficial? Is that helpful? Yes. But this is so much better. This is, God, God did not save us so that we could be personal believers in heaven. There, there, there is no, and I want to be very careful how I say this, there is no personal worship service going on right now in heaven. Do you realize that? It's all corporate. It's all together as the body of believers because we are looking forward to the day when we will all come together as one from every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue and worship the Lamb. That's what we're going for. We are called to be part of his people and are you faithful to his people? Not as a requirement, but as a necessity for your spiritual life. To think about a light bulb still being on for 120 years is quite amazing to think about. But I hope this morning that we've seen that to think about the faithfulness of Jesus as his role as high priest is an even greater contemplation. He was completely faithful. He fulfilled what God gave him to do. His, com- his faithfulness is comparable to Moses's. He was faithful, but, Mo- but Christ is greater than Moses as completely faithful as Moses was. And our response is that we are to be faithful to the people of God that God has placed in our path. So may you and I this week reflect the faithfulness of our Savior as we remain true to his people until we see him face to face.